0: Pray for the uh, children's ministry before we get started. Father, I pray that you be with our children as they are uh, going in their classes. We and we love these children, Father. We we pray that you will uh, help them to be attentive, help them to to hear the story of uh, Jesus in their lesson. And uh, Lord, we pray that it might uh, change the lives of all these children someday. Be with the The leaders and the helpers that are are there, Father, we thank you for them and ask that you will uh, help them today, that they can be clear, that they can be loving, and uh, example Jesus to these children. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to start off by sharing a story with you. On October twenty second, 1844, Tens of thousands of people in the state of Massachusetts expected the world to come to an end. They were followers of William Miller, a man who claimed to know the date of Jesus' second coming. Many Millerites, as they became to be known as, sold all their possessions to prepare for the day when Jesus would return to earth, gather them up to heaven. And purify the rest of the world in an all consuming fire, which is what they believed was going to take place. As the date approached, a great comet blazed across the sky and the number of believers grew. On October 22nd, the Millerites donned white robes, climbed mountains or trees to speed their ascension into heaven. When the prophecy failed, most of them abandoned. Miller and his beliefs. William Miller was a devout Baptist and careful student of the Bible. In 1818, he calculated a date for the end of the world by using a strictly literal reading of the first chapters of Genesis and other prophetic events of the Bible. He aligned these events with the prophetic numbering systems in the books of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation. He became convinced that he could use this system to determine the exact period of time between the birth of Jesus, the fall of Jerusalem, and the return of the Messiah. Jesus, Miller predicted, would make his millennial return and the world would end on October 22, 1844. After publishing a book about his theory in 1831, he set off on a speaking tour throughout the Northeast. Despite many scoffers and doubters, he steadily gained followers. By 1840, Miller had gathered a sizable following, most of these Millerites, between 50,000 and 100,000 in 1844, which is, if you think back to 1844, that's a lot of people, a large amount of, of the population, that lived in central and eastern Massachusetts, Their religious meetings had all the emotional passion of tent revivals. As the year of the expected apocalypse neared, believers in the prophecy began to give away their belongings, abandon their crops, and sell their land. In the town of Harvard, one man sold his cows at great sacrifice because there would be no one to care for them when he was gone up. Women in the Worcester area cut off their hair, removed the ruffles from their dresses, threw or gave away their jewelry, and in some cases, everything they owned. Others broke up all their furniture, declaring that they would no longer have use for tables or chairs or beds. Wanting to be suitably attired for heaven, Millerites made long white garments for themselves that they called their ascension robes. In the spring of 1844, a prophetic sign appeared. Miller's prediction at the end of the, that the end of the world was near gained new weight and new adherence when a great comet was seen passing over the sky at noontime. On October 22nd, believers donned their robes. A large gathering lived in or around Groton. Believing that Christ would return on a mountaintop, they climbed up Mount Wintusius, I believe is the name of it, to await the coming of the Lord. One respectable but arthritic arthritic old man from Harvard who could not make it up the mountain stationed himself at the very top of the tallest apple tree in his orchard and waited out the night. In New Bedford, a whole family perched on the branches of an apple tree dressed in their white robes. According to one story, a man accosted Ralph Waldo Emerson and the Reverend Theodore Parker on a Concord road and excitedly asked if they realized that the world was coming to an end that day. Mr. Parker said, It does not concern me, for I live in Boston. And Mr. Emerson said, The end of the world does not affect me. I can get along without it. The vast majority of Millerites were devastated, and some impoverished by the failure of the prophecy. A remnant continues, continued to believe and then they reinterpreted the meaning of the prophecy and came to see October 22nd, 1844 as the day of Christ's cleansing of his heavenly, not or rather than the earthly sanctuary. So they just kind of changed what they thought took place. There have been many such instances throughout the church age of theologians, mathematicians, preachers, and false prophets who have claimed to predict the second coming of Jesus. From as early as 44 AD, which is the earliest that I saw uh, an example, until this very past April 23rd, they have been in existence. But all of the predictions have one thing, in common, they've turned out not to be correct. As Bob read last Sunday from Matthew 24:36, Jesus told his disciples, "But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only." So why people keep thinking that it's important to come up with that date? after Jesus has made that declaration, I do not know. Jesus' purpose in telling about his return was not to encourage predictions and calculations of the date, but to warn his followers to be prepared. Jesus, through the remainder of chapter 24, what we'll finish today, and through chapter 25 of Matthew, Exhorts his followers to watchfulness. Let's look at chapter 24, but back up one verse from where I'm actually going to be today. To verse uh, 44. That says, therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Bob asked those of us who were here last week after speaking on that verse, if you were ready spiritually for the return of Christ. That is a question that each and every one of us must answer for ourselves. I can't answer that for you. You can't answer that for me. But once that question has been answered, how are we to be prepared? What does that mean? What does it look like? With verse 44, Jesus has generally completed the predictive part of this discourse that he's involved in, pointing to the future, predicting that something's coming to, to, to uh, take place. Now he begins to provide some parables that assist us in understanding how to be watching in the manner that he desires. One thing that becomes very clear in these parables, that we are to serve our Lord actively, knowing that he could come at any minute. This understanding should motivate us to pursue holiness, loving God and our neighbor. Today's passage, beginning in verse 45, I believe, is directed to those in positions of responsibility over the family of God. This is probably meaning shepherds, but an argument can be made that it would also include anyone who's responsible to teach the word of God. That would include the apostles that he was instructing at the time, Pastors, evangelists, Bible study teachers, community group leaders, children's church volunteers, Bible college and seminary professors, missionaries, etc. All of them have responsibilities to accurately teach the Word of God. But lest you think that because you're not in one of those positions that this passage today doesn't speak to you. You would be incorrect, so don't go walking off thinking that, because that's not what I'm teaching to you. But I do believe that it it is primarily intended that, and that's why there's several parables that we'll be looking at over the next weeks, because God or uh, Jesus deals with different groups. So let's read this passage, and then we'll begin to work through it, starting at verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, And begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. And will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Starts off pretty nicely, ends pretty poorly. It's important to understand the main responsibility of the faithful and wise servant in this parable. He is to give the household that he's over their food at the proper time. The person that the responsibility is given to by the master is the one who is over his household. It was very common throughout early world history for wealthy households to have not only servants, but to have a head servant who would be over all the other servants, or the one who was put in charge of the household. This person was very typically responsible for everything that took place in the household. Remember Joseph, when he was in Potiphar's house, detailed in Genesis 39. That section says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmael, bought, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in the eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household. This is that position that we're talking about. And he entrusted to him everything he owned. And from the time he put him in charge of his household, And of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. And with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except for the food that he ate. So he was in charge. I mean, as as much as you can be in charge of a place, Joseph was. And this was somewhat typical of how it would work. This is generally what I think Jesus is talking about and what the disciples are envisioning as Jesus tells them this parable. They may have, they may have also had the, the memory of Joseph come to mind as he was describing this event. The disciples can also see that Jesus is speaking of them as he shares the story. He's leaving the care of his family in their charge very soon when he dies on the cross and is resurrected and, and uh, ascends to heaven. He's the master in the story and they are to be the faithful and wise servant there to give his family their food at the proper time. But what food? What, is, what does this mean to give them food? Are the disciples responsible to provide physical nourishment to those who they are responsible for? Are today's pastors over churches responsible to provide physical food to those in their congregation? I would say in some situations, yeah. Yeah. It probably does get to that point. Because you won't be able to tell that person spiritual good news on a hungry stomach. So if you're not feeding them, they're not going to be listening. But this is not what Jesus specifically is addressing. The food that his family needs is the Word of God. It's the responsibility of the wise servant to diligently, accurately, consistently teach and model the Word of God to those who are in the family of God so that they will be well fed and be watching on His return. If this is neglected, then the family of God will languish and starve. It will not be ready When the Lord returns. Second Timothy 3.16 and 17 says. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching. For reproof. For correction. And for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete. Equipping. Equipped for every good work. It is through the scriptures. That God makes himself known. To. To. Humankind. It's through scriptures that we receive the basis for godly living. Or we wouldn't know what it looks like. Through the Holy Spirit in our lives and our relationships with other Christians, scriptures are used to help us in our training in righteousness. It is used to teach us. It can be used to correct us. And through it, we can be prepared to do every good work, which is what we're called to do. We learn from the teachings of Scriptures how to live in a manner worthy of our calling. We learn from Scriptures that we have a calling. How to love. Who's our neighbor? And to turn away from sin and pursue righteousness. All things that without the Scriptures we would not know about nor pursue. So I understand these verses to be instructing elders, pastors, shepherds, or whatever other title may be used for this position, to be faithful, to be diligent, to be bold, to be consistent and accurate in their teaching of the Word of God. Feeding all of us the Holy Scriptures at every opportunity. Blessed is the servant whom the Master finds so doing when he comes. For this is when he will find well-fed, active, faithful, anticipating people of his return. And that's what we want. That's what Jesus wants. They won't be unprepared. They won't be wishing that they had a little more time to finish up some stuff that they knew they were supposed to take care of. Because they thought they had more time. No, we're to be prepared. And be careful not to conclude that the book itself is the actual food. This is, in some ways, just words. It's what the words say that makes a difference, but it is a book. But it's not the book that's the food. It's the Lord which the book reveals that's our food. We celebrate that when we go to communion, representing what Christ did for us when he died. Christ is found in the Scriptures both in the Old and New Testaments throughout, throughout the Bible. I understand that the job of an elder involves many things. I, I, I'm not saying that their only responsibility is to preach the Word and teach the Word. It involves modeling of the Scriptures. It involves counseling and visiting the homebound and sick and many other things. But this passage helps us to clarify that the most important thing that an elder does is teach the word of God to the family of God. If they're not doing that, all the other things mean nothing. So they need to do that primarily and the other things included. But what happens if the elders neglect feeding the household. Jesus speaks of another servant in this passage who is not faithful and diligent in his duties. In fact, he calls him wicked. He may have been active early in his Christian life or in his ministry, but the Master did not come when he was expecting him. You know, I I wonder too sometimes, what, what is is going on in the sense that over 2,000 years is gone that he said he's coming soon. The only thing I can conclude is soon to him doesn't mean soon to us. We're, we're stuck in an in amount of time that means something to us that means nothing to God. The 2,000 years was a blink of an eye to him. This wicked servant even convinced himself by saying, My master is delayed, to justify his laziness. He becomes self serving, self important, thinking that he's better than those that he's responsible for. He mistreats the family members. He holds out the best of everything for himself and his family. He looks out for himself more than he looks out for the people he's to serve. But the master will come. And when that day arrives, this wicked servant will be caught unaware. Along with those that he was responsible for. Because they're going to be thinking the same that he does. Jesus makes it very clear in this passage that it's a very serious thing to fail in the feeding of the household of God. The wicked servant's neglect results with people who are ignorant of biblical truths. The church becomes a place of gathering of friends who haven't seen each other for the week. And they come together to gossip about what has been going on, maybe with other people. They come and cause dissensions. They come and they stand offish with other people. It, it becomes nothing more than if you were a member of the Elks or the DFW or any other place where you get together with people of a common background. And the church of God should not be like everything else. The congregation becomes lazy and disinterested and fearful. If you don't know what's coming and have the proper perspective of the coming of Christ and your own heart is prepared for His return, then I can say you have reason to be fearful. So it would be expected that people would be afraid. Of what's to happen when he comes. The members become hypocrites just like their pastor. Shame on an elder or pastor that is responsible for this taking place. And if you've visited any churches in your travels on vacations or in your moves throughout your lifetime... You have probably been to one of these churches. I know I have many times. You kind of wonder just what in the world they're there for. Because you didn't usually hear the Word of God being taught. Everyone was standoffish. Many other things. Shame on that elder. Shame on that pastor. But Jesus will appear and when that day comes... Those pastors who did not carry out his duties for the master will be found out. The last verses of this section tell of the horrible end of the wicked servant. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. And will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This can only lead to a conclusion that this pastor, this elder, this person that's being talked about was never really one of God's children. Because that's not the end of somebody who's a Christian. That's not where you end up. So the only way that that person can end up in that circumstance is if he wasn't a believer in the first place. They were pretenders. They were fooled, even as they fooled those around them, about their confession. I think there are many people who believe themselves to be a Christian. And when Jesus returns, they're going to find out that they're not. Actually, in Matthew 7, Jesus even speaks about this Himself. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? He's even doing, he's saying they're even doing things, calling on Jesus and saying it was for him. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So even Jesus, again, earlier in his ministry, expressed the fact that many people can and will find at the end of life when Jesus returns that they never quite understood what it meant to be a Christian. That's why we need the Word taught. That's why we need to be diligent personally Studying scriptures and finding out what they mean. Find out what it means to be a Christian. Find out what it means to to live a righteous life. Looking for some of the telltale signs. Does your life look like one that he says a righteous man or woman would look like? Or do we look like the one that would be someone without Christ? That's an indicator. That's something we should be aware of. Something you should look at in your own life and review. Am I living in a manner that's worthy of the calling of my salvation? This wicked servant was pretending. And I believe that Many in the church that he would be over is probably in the same boat because they don't understand either. They may be hoping that God will let them into heaven anyway when He comes because they're good people. Or they tried to do the right thing. Jesus talks about people that were doing things in His name and doing mighty things in His name. So obviously having some success in what it is that they were doing, but still not being someone who is really saved. But this is not what makes a person a Christian. This pastor will be punished as an unbeliever in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because that is what he is, an unbeliever. When a place is described in scriptures as a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's a place and state of inconsolable grief and unremitting torment. It's usually used to describe hell. and only the unbeliever will be sent to judgment in hell. So this wicked servant must have been an unbeliever. This causes one, especially someone as I, in a position of an elder in a local church, It, it it tells us that we are being held accountable for what we're doing. That's one reason why when we look for people to be elders or teachers of community groups and things like that, that we try to be careful about who it is that we put in that position. Because it is an awesome, fearful responsibility in some ways. Because you will be held accountable at a higher level than someone who's not. Bob, Ted, Alan, BJ, Levi, myself, may we be found to be faithful when Jesus returns. We ask you as those who attend here to be praying for us. We're not perfect by any means. We deal with many of the same things that all of us deal with daily. Just because we were appointed elders didn't remove us from the flesh. as I've been getting to know these men that have been appointed as elders here, I can tell you that they are men who love God and seek to serve Him. And they love you. And they seek to give you the Word of God in its proper time as often as they have the opportunity. I can assure you that none of us will try to convince you to sell everything on a particular day this year and to go up on some mountaintop or in an apple tree to await Jesus' return. I don't think you'll ever hear that here. But we do want you to be prepared. And that's what we try to do when we Open this book and try to teach what the scriptures are saying and explain them to you and explain them to ourselves. Over the next few weeks, we'll be hearing more of the parables of Jesus in chapter 25. I think Bob uh, is preaching the next sermon, so he'll be dealing with the uh, parable of the ten virgins. And I think as time goes on in these sermons, we'll have a little better idea of what Jesus is saying is the way to be prepared. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book that you have given us with the very words of God in it. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, that your Holy Spirit works in taking that message and helping us to understand, helping us to apply it into our lives. Lord, we pray that you will be with this local body Specifically, but we also pray for the many other churches in our area and throughout the world, Lord, that claim Christ. We ask that you will be with the the leaders, the pastors, the elders, the, the shepherds who are over these churches, that they might be men who are diligent in their duties. That the churches that they are over will be well fed at your return. That they'll know who God is and who Jesus Christ is. That they'll know what it means to have their lives changed and become Christians. That they'll understand what it looks like to be godly men and women and how to strive to live in that manner. We pray that you'll be with the elders here, the teachers here in their various roles that you will help us to be careful, to be bold, to be loving, to be accurate, to be diligent in doing this. Lord, we thank you. We pray for any who may be here today who may be wondering right now if they will be one of those who will be in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, we pray not. We pray for their soul. We ask that You will save them. We ask that You'll change their hearts even now and their minds. Help them to understand. Help them to seek Jesus in that relationship. Thank you, Father, for this day and the time that we're able to share together. In Jesus' name, amen.